Chapter Four of Daylight Land by W. H. H. Murray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four: The Big Nipigon Trout. We may say of angling, as Doctor Butler said of strawberries, "Doubtless God could have made a better berry, but doubtless God never did." And so, if I might judge, God never did make a more calm, quiet, innocent recreation than angling. Isaac Walton. Civilization means luxury, said the judge sententiously as he looked complacently over the dinner table, with its snowy linen, its delicate china, its burnished plate, its cut glassware, and its vase of woodland flowers. It is that fine arrangement by which matter is made to minister to mind, the lower compelled to assist the higher. The provision made for travel is the best measure of American progress. Analyze the matter, Judge, I said as I passed him the menu. Analyze the matter and tell us what civilization has to do with you and me at this moment. Bullion, said the judge to the waiter. Mock turtle, I added. Mock turtle is too heavy for summer, said the judge peremptorily to me. Like the majority of Americans, you have lived in spite of yourself. You have the senses of a Greek and the appetite of a barbarian. The man who eats mock turtle soup in summer is a proof that the principle of divine preservation is still active. There's nothing to bullion, I retorted. It's only water with a hint of a flavor in it, and the hint isn't always very plain either. That's the beauty of it, returned the judge. That's the beauty of it, he exclaimed as he fixed a dainty boutonniere of choice flowers stolen from the vase to the lapel of his coat. The civilized man abhors grossness. The barbarian feeds at a trough. Educate him, and he erects a table. Knife and fork replace his fingers, and as you refine him, the number of his dishes increases, adornments multiply, until at last he is lifted to that level upon which you and I live, where the nose and the eye eat with the mouth, and the furniture of the table, in the elegance of its appointments, magnifies the feast. By this time the soup had been brought and for a moment the conversation ceased. We were running between some lofty hills. Here and there we passed a small clearing, with its little log house in the center. Each narrow field was a mass of woodland flowers, scarlet, purple, and white, standing as if planted in separate beds, characterizing the field with color. The cabins here and there were covered with clambering vines, and on their sodden roofs the birds and winds, those planters of the air, had sown the seeds for flowering, fruitful growth. Outside the world was warm and odorous. The wild flowers sweetened it, and the wind which blew the scented air through our open windows and into our nostrils brought from the lofty hills wild, gamey scents and pungencies of fir and pine. The judge sipped his bullion delicately, as if every drop were a separate ministration to his palate. His eyes contemplated with pleased satisfaction not only the glorious color of the flowers, the green of the hills, and the blue sky, but also the amber-tinted liquid in his spoon, while his nostrils expanded as if they would inhale more abundantly the perfume that drifted through the window. It was impossible not to see in him the incarnation of refined physical enjoyment, a man who honored his appetite by gratifying it, but who gratified it in a manner so delicate that he not only redeemed it from the least appearance of grossness, 
but made his gratification the means for the display of his virtues. "'I have travelled," remarked the judge reflectively, "'in most of the countries of the world. I have suffered in the tropics from heat, and in the Arctic regions from cold. For the sake of seeing a few old ruins, mostly buried in sand, I have borne the agony of prolonged thirst on the desert.' and that i might go a little farther than someone else up some river or over some mountain i have inflicted upon my body the pangs which precede starvation but i have come to that period of life in which man ceases to be an impulsive and becomes a reasoning animal and while the spirit of the tourist is in me as strongly as ever i nevertheless insist that in return for my money civilization shall give me as i journey three things safety comfort luxury if it will give me these and i assure you thousands feel as i do upon the subject i will give my money and go and see what it has that is new to show me if not i will stay at home i must confess that i was impressed with the conclusion that the judge had reached the more so perhaps because it was the first time i had ever heard it so clearly formulated and I presume my face manifested the interest which I felt in his line of remark, for after he had tasted of each of the vegetables before him, as a lady might examine several samples of lace, and deftly prepared the fish for its dressing, he resumed, "'I am an illustration of my theory, sir. I have crossed the continent twenty times, I presume. I have travelled on every other line repeatedly, but I have never seen the prairie lands west of Winnipeg.' which an old friend who came over this route last summer wrote me were as beautiful as the valley of the Platte, and as lovely as the Laramie Plains, the most beautiful stretch of prairie land in the world, he said, and from Black Canyon to the Fraser River, he wrote me eight pages describing it. He is nearly seventy years old, bear in mind. Eight pages of description, an old forty-niner at that. That was simply wild, sir." wild and extravagant as the description of a boy, and it is because of those letters from my old friend concerning these Canadian prairies we shall see to-morrow, and the four hundred miles of mountain scenery lying west of the prairies, that I undertook the journey. But, sir, he added with emphasis, I would never have undertaken it unless I had ascertained that I could travel with safety and with comfort, and be provided as I journeyed with certain luxuries nevertheless judge i remarked the loveliness and majesties of nature are a compensation for occasional deprivations are they not within certain limitations i should agree with you he replied but for myself the amber of my bullion assists me to appreciate more perfectly the flowers blooming in that little clearing the taste of this salmon in my mouth makes that stretch of water yonder seem more charming, and I am confident that the ice-cream, the nuts, and the coffee which I see are provided for our dessert, will give to the sky a bluer tint, and add softness to the fleece of yonder clouds. Thus the conversation flowed on, while the train glided along past the beaches of the bays that set deeply into the mountains which characterize with their massive formations the northern shore of Lake Superior. The judge was in his best mood, and talked as only one who has seen much of the world, its peoples, and its ways can talk. Each course was duly honored, as if it were the only one to be enjoyed. 
and the table-hour, as the judge with pleasant conceit named it, was one so utilized that while it ministered most fully to the wants of the body, it contributed beyond any other to the pleasures of the mind. "'Hello!' I exclaimed as I glanced at the timetable, which, in the form of an illustrated itinerary, lay on the table. "'We must be nearing the Nippigon.' "'The Nippigon!' exclaimed the judge with the ardor of a sportsman. "'More monstrous trout have been caught in the Nippigon than any other river on the continent. I have friends who firmly believe that it is one of the four sacred rivers that flowed out of paradise.' "'I think I would agree with them,' I laughingly returned. "'If they would make their paradise include not only the river, but the lake in which it heads. For if Lake Nippigon was not in paradise, it was a great loss for paradise.' and as I spoke the train struck the bridge which stretches across the noble and noted river, and as it was gliding smoothly on it slowed and suddenly stopped. "'Oh, oh, oh! See, Tom, look! Jones, where are you?' "'For the Lord, Mars Judge!' exclaimed the waiter. "'You two gentlemen get to the hind end of the car if you wants to see what's going on down there in that river.' The excitement was contagious for the car was full of shouts, cheers, and exclamations. The judge rushed down the aisle to the rear of the car. "'Great heavens!' he exclaimed as he reached the platform. "'Look at that!' A hundred feet below us flowed the noble current, a deep, wide, strong-moving mass of water. Here and there an eddy marked it with its huge circumference. But in the main it moved downward toward the great lake shining in full view as a river flows between widened banks and with plenty of room in the middle of the river nearly under us was a canoe with an indian at either end and a man in a velveteen jacket standing in the centre in his hands was a rod and the tip of the rod was doubled backward nigh to the reel the ringing whirr of which filled the air his pose was that of an angler who had struck a fish a big fish a fish that is fighting him gamely and stubbornly, and which he is resisting with the cool, determined skill of a veteran of the rod. "'What a picture!' exclaimed the judge. "'God, what a picture!' Well might he exclaim, what a picture! The wide river, the island-studded lake into which it emptied, the lofty banks, the great dome of blue sky above, high over the stream, as if hung in mid-air, the long train, every window filled with heads, every platform crowded with forms, the engineer, an angler himself, hanging out of the cab, swinging his hat, below the canoe, the ochred Indians, the bent body of the angler, the swaying, quivering, doubled-up rod. What a picture! Suddenly we who were looking saw the rod straighten. Some of us knew what it meant. The judge clinched my arm, and in an instant out of the water came the trout, mouth open, fins extended, tails spread. "'Jerusalem!' screamed the judge. "'He's a twenty-pounder! Dear old judge, thou hadst the true angler's eye, that eye which enlarges and multiplies by a happy trick of vision not merely the size of the fish, but the enjoyment of the soul. Ay, ay, it was a twenty-pounder to both of us old sports for the instant.' and if the envious scales did shrink the noble form to shorter and thinner proportions, it could not rob us of the ecstasy of our first estimate, thank heaven. And the fight that followed, what words may set it forth? Anglers, shut your eyes and see and hear it from behind your closed lids. 
call memory to your aid the memory of the sternest fight you ever fought of the swiftest torrent of the widest pool of that favorite rod smashed to splinters of paddle broken of the biggest fish that ever swam lost or won stop i say and from behind closed lids see all this and you will see what we saw under the great bridge over the nipigon on that bright june day whoever the man in the velveteen jacket might be he was of the right sort an angler of whom anglers need never be ashamed for as he fought that fish he gave us such an exhibition of angler's fence as ranked him one of the best that ever fingered reel an eight-ounce rod against an eight-pound fish a strong deep current and a nipigon canoe grant anglers such conditions and how many shall make a winning fight twice the huge fish broke water and twice the long train cheered him to the echo the judge was wild each time the fish broke the surface he fairly jumped he leaned far over the rail he swung his hat and when the monstrous trout broke the surface the second time he yelled save him save him and i'll nominate you for the presidency once the great fish for an instant burst through his opponent's guard once i must confess my heart sank within me as a stone sinks to the bottom of a well when he was a hundred feet from the canoe the rod nearly tip and butt and the silk line stretched through the air like a wire the fish doubled and lanced backward like a flash we saw his wake that sharpened wedge of water which anglers dread and as he went under the canoe and in the stillness that had come to us we heard the line rattle on the bark a groan escaped the judge he rolled his eyes upward and roared as if stricken with pain great scott he's lost him but the fish was not lost the angler recovered his advantage and fought the fight to the end skillfully and coolly the fish was deftly gaffed by one of the indians and quickly lay on the bottom of the canoe the indians seized their paddles and the light craft glanced toward the western bank the man unjointing his rod as the boat shot along and in a moment they came panting up the embankment with a huge hamper in their hands in which amid flowers and grasses lay six other trout nearly as large as the one we had seen captured seldom is such a reception granted to a mortal as was given to the man in the velveteen jacket the engineer cheered and swung his hat the fireman sooted and begrimed capered and danced on the coal-box like an electrified imp the passengers yelled the ladies fluttered their handkerchiefs while we anglers of the party fairly took him in our arms and lifted him on to the platform where the judge enfolded him in an embrace which the stranger will never forget a hug such as an old angler gives a younger one to whom he is indebted for the exhibition of skill which has brought back to his memory all his own former victories and proved to his anxious soul that the gentle art is not being neglected never fear never fear dear old judge that the art of all arts will be lost or the skill of trained finger and eye be forgotten we shall pass but still the streams will flow on the pools will go round and the trout love the coolness of springs and the rush of swift waters the boys will grow up like their sires loving water and sun loving forest and rapids with brown faces and hands and with eyes keen as ours they will stand where we stood they will boat where we boated they will camp where we camped 
and the dead ashes of fires that we kindled they will kindle into new life again. The gentle art will live on, while nature is nature and mankind is man. End of chapter 4